0: From Loyola University, Chicago School of Law, this is The Podvocate. We're law students exploring the vanguard of the legal world with experts from our backyard and beyond. Subscribe to The Podvocate wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Hello, today we're here with me Radhika Sutherland
0: and Matt Doran
1: we are thrilled to welcome the Honorable Judge Sarah Ellis with us today the reason she's here is because I've been fortunate enough to hear her speak a few different times Um, most recently she taught a class that I took with the Rome program this summer so I knew that everyone deserved to hear her words just like I so benefited from them so Judge Ellis thank you so much for being with us today you're welcome Um, If you just want to give us a little bit of background, tell us a little bit about your path to the
2: federal bench. Sure. So um, I'm a Loyola grad, and I graduated from Loyola in 94. I had no thoughts about going to law school before I went to law school. I thought I was going to be a pediatric orthopedic surgeon, and then chemistry.
0: That is a took me Far down. Afield. Oh, oh <laughs> Yeah,
2: chemistry <laughs> took me down and that was it. So I was a senior in college, had no idea what I was going to do. My majors were uh, political science and religious studies, and I double minored in Italian and art history, and all of that put together meant that I was moving back home because I could (laughs) not get a job so rather than living with my parents I took the LSAT on a lark and decided to go to law school and see what that was like and if I didn't like it I could go do something else but at least I wasn't moving back home
0: Mm
2: -hmm. Uh, and I came to Loyola in part because I really liked the Jesuit mindset of service Um, And frankly, I wanted to be in Chicago because I thought that would be really cool. So after law school, I went to the Federal Defender's Office uh, and was there for about uh, six years, seven years, somewhere around there, and had thought that I'd be there forever. I loved my job, I loved my clients, but then I got married, I had kids, and that job I couldn't do part-time. So then I went to a small law firm and did white collar criminal defense. And then I went to the city and represented the police department. And then I went to a big firm and did all sorts of things. So commercial litigation, uh, represented the University of California police systems. I represented banks, uh, big people, little people, all sorts of things. Uh, but I had always in the back of my mind from when I became a federal defender wanted to be a judge. I didn't know how that would happen. I didn't know how I'd get there, but my thought was that I noticed I could make the best arguments that I thought were a slam dunk, right, and that it would advocate for my client as to what justice would be But the person wearing the robe was the person with the power, Mm -hmm. and I thought if I really want to do justice, then really I should be the one wearing the robe. Mm -hmm. But I had no idea how I'd get there, so it was really just luck and fate um, that Senator Durbin had an opening, and I applied and made it through his selection committee, Um, and then luckily President Obama nominated me, and the Senate confirmed me and so here I am. It makes me really happy to hear that story because
1: you may not know this about me, but I was a molecular biology pre-med major in college also, minored in English literature and dance, and I did end up moving back home, so some of us aren't that lucky. Um, I also wanted to live in Chicago and somehow ended up at Loyola also, so there's hope for us yet, that makes oh, me happy to here. absolutely.
2: No, and I think that it's, it's a journey, right? It's a process, and if you had told me when I was a little kid, would I be in this spot? I would have said, absolutely not. If you had told me when I was in college, would I be sitting here? I'd say, no way. If you had told me, even as a federal defender, would I be here? I would have said, nope. Really, everything that I've done has helped prepare me for this job. And I only see that in looking backwards. I couldn't see it looking forwards. Yeah, I um, went through periods where I would regret why
1: didn't I go to law school right after undergrad, I wasted eight years of my life. And now that I am here, I realize that I couldn't have found a fraction of the success that I have without all the previous experience that I had. So totally agree with you on that.
0: You mentioned that you couldn't, when you were a public defender, a federal public defender, you couldn't see yourself in the robes. It just wasn't a tangible reality for you. If you were trying to give advice to somebody who was thinking like, wow, I would love to go do that. How can they, how can someone who is looking to do that put themselves in a position and I know you said that it wasn't a linear path that you just it's this kind of amalgam of experiences that you were able to piece together and then go say now I'm ready to go do this but is there something where you can uh, point to to potential uh, future sitters of the bench who would like to go that route and and you can say this is the thing that can set you on the right path
2: I think it's to do the best at what you're doing in that moment That's what's going to really put you in the position to go on the bench or be successful or whatever it is that you eventually want to do because it's hard enough to do a good job when you love your job, right? But a lot of times as lawyers, either we don't love our job or we love parts of our job but not other parts of the job and it's hard to consistently do quality work and do your best every time. That, I think, is one way to really stand out. If I were to tell you, take this job, then take that job, get this experience, get that experience, it really is like catching lightning in a bottle. You may get it, you may not, but if you consistently do quality work all the time, that is how you're gonna get noticed.
0: So, we're here today to talk about a lawyer's professional reputation, and I imagine that there are, when litigants come before your court, they think, oh, we have Judge Ellis, and she's either super fair, or she's a plaintiff's attorney, she's a defensive attorney, there's, you know, every attorney who's probably come before you has heard something, but it still speaks to this larger issue of what is that attorney's reputation? And th- Radica, why don't you share a little bit about what you think makes Judge Ellis so perfectly suited to this? Because I know that you had an experience with the judge that I didn't get to have because I was not so fortunate to be in Lecita Eterna this summer.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. So every time I've had the fortune to hear Judge Ellis speak, I, there's something that sticks with me, and I think about it a lot. And the very last day we were in Rome... She gave a very, very poignant, I hate to call it lecture, but I guess that's what it was, about how if nothing else matters, your reputation does. And I have literally thought about it every single day since. Mm. And I think that hearing her say those words really affected how I will carry myself from here on out or from the day I heard it moving forward. It has become a part of how I operate, those Hmm. words coming from someone with her position, but also with her experience and wisdom, it really stuck with me. So I wanted other students and practicing lawyers to have a chance to hear the same thing because I think that it would make our profession better if every lawyer carried that with them the way that I have ever since I heard Judge Hmm. Ellis speak about it.
0: Hmm. Judge, what does professionalism mean to you?
2: I think, and it sounds um, maybe a little simplistic, but really it's to be kind, right? And put yourself in the other person's shoes if you can. You know, you can be an advocate and a really strong advocate and a successful advocate without being a jerk. And so there are lots and lots and lots of opportunities that come up as you're practicing where you have a choice to make and where you have to decide, who am I? And you have to act in concert with who you are. And it will come up in ways big and small. So you might get an email from the other side saying, hey, will you agree to an extension of time? There are some lawyers that will never, ever, ever agree. And I don't really see the point in that, right? Because maybe they're asking for more time because they didn't get around to it, right? And they're just not good lawyers. It could also be that they have a lot of cases going on all at once and they just can't get to it. It could be that they have something going on at home or something going on with themselves. And you have no idea what's going on, so why not give that person the benefit of the doubt and give them more time? It's not gonna hurt you, it's not gonna hurt your clients. Just do it. There are other times where you have to decide, really, who are you, right? So in civil litigation, you're gonna get, see documents in in discovery, and know it's not good for your side. And you have to decide, am I going to turn them over? Am I going to say, you know, hide behind while they're not really relevant or hide behind objections or say that there's some kind of privilege there and make it up? You could do that, but there's a risk you're going to get caught. And if you don't get caught, you still kind of chipped away at your soul and who you are. And no job is worth that ever. No client is worth that. As a lawyer you have lots and lots of opportunities to make decisions about who you are and then act consistently with that. I think as law students that it's really important to spend just as much time as you spend learning contracts and criminal law and property and secured transactions and the UCC. Spend a good part of t- of your time in law school, figuring out who you are and how are you going to practice. And that's, in a macro sense, what professionalism means to me. We were lucky enough
1: to have um, Professor Waller, Spencer Waller, as our civil procedure professor.
0: I was thinking the same thing. Yeah,
1: yeah. and I honestly shame on me, can't remember a single rule of civil procedure, but I do remember his number one rule. He called it the Spencer-Waller rule, don't be a jerk. And that's another one that I'll never forget. So I'm lucky to hear it over and over again in law school, and I think it's impactful.
0: Mm-hmm. And it sounds like, from what you're describing, Judge, that the legal profession has, because the, the, your, your first statement of be kind, you can be applied to it you know, more or less any profession, but it's it seems as if it has particular relevance in the legal profession.
2: It does, because the legal profession is built around two sides advocating to get to a certain result, and that result, you know, people want to win, right? It's very binary, the legal system. It's very binary. It's plaintiff versus defendant, right? It's the government versus the defendant. And so you don't file a lawsuit or you don't litigate a lawsuit unless you wanna win, right? And so if you go into it with that mindset of I wanna win as opposed to, I want to get to a just result, which may not be winning. It might be, but it may not be winning and it's certainly not winning at all costs. In some ways, being kind is countercultural.
1: Yeah. In, in our society, yeah, <laughs> being kind is counterculture,
2: absolutely. And so um, you have to figure out, all right, how am I going to ethically represent my client and do what's in the best interest of my client, but do that in a way that is not demeaning to myself and it doesn't diminish who I am. And so they're, you know, unfortunately, in lit- particularly in litigation, but in other aspects, um, even in transactional work too, you have a lot of opportunities to cut corners and to be sneaky and to lie. And a lot of times that can get justified because if you do that, then you win. So you get that result. The legal profession would be in a Better place if more people would just take a minute and say, you know, we don't necessarily have to win. We have to get to what the just result is.
0: I really appreciate you bringing up about law students taking time during their studies to also think about what kind of attorneys they want to be. And it's not to push back just a little bit, it is easier said than done when you are facing a mountain of work and podcasting responsibilities which we are so <laughs> eager to have and we love doing this but it is still time that we're not studying federal income tax but i do think it's critically important as you progress in your career even if you're not necessarily studying federal income tax you're having you have a you know Rodica and i are both married my first child will be born in february the adult responsibilities quote unquote are going to continue to increase as time goes on your other uh, your other professional responsibilities are going to increase how do attorneys stay mindful of that and I, I'll, I'll couch that or, or put that in context within my dad was an attorney and to, as he approached retirement he would say that I'm so frustrated with my clients lying to me he was a TNE lawyer and I'm so frustrated with my clients lying to me like why am I trying to be the upstanding guy here like, my clients just keep lying to me And I assume that he's not, you know, the exception, maybe not the rule, but he's not, that's not a rare instance. So how do attorneys who've been doing it for years and years, how do they stay mindful of, this is why I got into this, this is the kind of lawyer I started out wanting to be, and and here's how I maintain that? How do you recommend that attorneys practice that?
2: Part of it is finding balance in your life, right? And everybody talks about finding balance, and balance can be a sham right like talk to me about balance when you're working till
0: 2 a.m especially for
1: women i think it's even particularly more difficult no offense matt
0: i do take offense i'm the one who's (laughs) going to be having a kid in february you won't have a kid in february i'm going to be balancing more
1: right but (laughs) i wouldn't be able to have a kid while i was in law school or i uh, that's
0: people do it I don't know how they do it it's right I mean
1: life. as a pair that's having a child it's easier to be the man in law school sure
0: than absolutely and the absolutely. woman balance we, we have a nursing uh, room here at the school it's on the 10th floor uh, and it's
1: not the prettiest. I'll keep that in mind <laughs> let me talk to my husband see if we want to bump our plans up a few years then. thank goodness for the nursing home room at the, right. <laughs> at the law right. school
2: so yeah I mean balance can if you use that word people can roll their eyes Right? and say it's hard to find balance when you're working till 2 a.m. It's hard to find balance when you know, you're juggling all these cases and you're juggling kids or other responsibilities. But if you're not healthy, then you can't be a good lawyer, right? And you can't make good decisions. So it really comes down to trying to create boundaries in your life and then having the self confidence and the kind of inner strength to enforce those boundaries and also being able to let go i know a lot of lawyers when they're starting out feel like i can't go into a partner and say here are my boundaries like this is time that i'm going to carve back for me
1: you can or say my that to family. a partner
2: can you But you can, right? okay. And you want to do it in a way that shows I am committed to my work. I'm committed to the clients. I will get my work done. This goes back to talking about doing quality work. When you get it from me, it's not garbage. But, for example, between 6 and 8 p.m., don't call me. Don't email me. I'm not available. I'm at home with my family. I am happy to talk to you at 8.01. And I will talk to you up to 5.59. Between 6 and 8, it's not happening. And you might get pushback, right? So what happens then when the partner says to you, that's great, but you're not working on my cases? You have to assess, all right, well, what's the culture in this firm? And is this the type of place That is going to help me grow into a better lawyer and help me grow into a better person. And if it's not, let it go and find somewhere else. You know, I think that a lot of lawyers are very type A individuals, very driven, pretty linear, and kind of focused, right? In order to get through law school, You have to be really logical. You know, if your mind is kind of chaotic and anything goes, you can't study, you can't analyze the information, you can't process it, you can't spit it back out. And because of that mindset, and I had that mindset, certainly as a younger lawyer, is that, you know, I'm here. This is where I'm going to stay. This is where I'm going to make my career. You know, I'm not interested in moving. I'm just going to make it work because if I can't make it work that's a reflection on me that is negative that I'm a quitter or I can't figure this out to be successful you know I don't belong and it could could be that but more likely than not it's this just isn't the right place for me it's not a good match and that's okay You know, not everywhere has to be a good match. Not everybody has to like me. I have to like me. And I have to like who I am in the job that I'm working. You know, if I'm at a place where I can't take care of myself, it's probably not a good place. If I am asked to do things for clients that I don't feel comfortable with, that's not a good place. And you want to then think about finding somewhere else and something else to do. Um, That's a nice thing about being a lawyer is that you're now trained to do all sorts of things. And so if one place isn't working out, you know, look for somewhere else that is a better fit that will allow you to be happy when you're going to work.
1: I was going to ask this at the end because I like to ask all of our guests, but your answer just fed right into it. What do you do for self-care? I like to ask all of our guests that because I want it to always be at the forefront of everyone's minds that self-care is important. I feel like, especially in this profession, we've been taught to ignore our own needs sometimes. So I just want to always highlight that even federal judges take care of themselves. Professors take care of themselves. So Judge Ellis, what do you do for self-care?
2: I do a lot of things. I spend time with my family. I cook. I really like to garden. I like just being outside, you know, in nature. I like being by the lake. I do those things to help me kind of let the job be where the job needs to be. And I can let that go because as a judge, you know, you have to do things that are really hard and you have to make decisions that are hard and that where people aren't happy, But that's what you have to do, right? And it's what the law requires. It's what justice requires. Um, But that isn't to say that there aren't hard decisions or that people are really unhappy with those decisions. If I take that with me, then I'm not going to be good in other parts of my life, and I'm certainly not going to be a good judge. So I have to practice self-care and do these things um, so that I can kind of let the job go and disengage and then get back to you know, the things that make me happy and bring me joy and make me feel passionate about my job. So let's
1: change gears just a little. Um, Being in law school in 2019 is probably pretty different than when you were in law school. Back in the dark ages. (laughs) Well, more that, like, as I scroll Instagram or social media, I really cringe at some things that people post because I'm concerned about what their future employers are going to think. Since you've started, how have the lines between personal and professional lives been kind of blurred? especially since the advent of social media?
2: I mean, I think social media is an awful, awful thing. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I don't just say that as the parent of teenagers. Um, I feel sorry for younger lawyers today, um, and certainly teenagers, in that you can't make mistakes anymore. When I was in law school, People made mistakes all the time, right? People made mistakes socially. Maybe they went out and got overserved somewhere. People made mistakes academically. People made mistakes in their interpersonal relationships. And what happened is that individual was held accountable or not in some way. And then everybody moved on. Yeah. And there was no permanent record of that mistake, and that mistake then did not define that individual. Now, whatever you do, it's getting captured and then shared by all sorts of people on social media. And so, you know, I, if I have law clerks applying to me, I mean, that's the first thing we do yeah. is we Google them and see what comes up. And, yeah, sometimes I see somebody sprawled out on a sidewalk wow. from their college days. And because those images are always there, right? And when you're 26 and applying to be a law clerk, you don't want your boss seeing, you know, your the evidence of your walk of shame from you know, seven years earlier. Because first of all, that's probably not who you are. And more importantly, that's not how you want to be defined. I caution people all the time to be really, really careful with social media. And that to think of it that if you wouldn't want your mom or your dad seeing what's out there, don't post it. Do you have to have... 200 friends or a thousand friends maybe not maybe you keep it (laughs) in a tighter (laughs) keep the circle tight you know Uh, so that if somebody because the thing is you can't control you might control what you post you can't control what other people post and I can guarantee you that the person that applied to me where we saw that photo that person did not post that picture somebody else posted that picture so the less that you're putting your life out on social media the less likely that the things you don't want people to see are going to be out there As an 80-year-old, do you really want those pictures out there? I'm thinking not. (laughs) I'm thinking
1: not. I can't imagine this generation as 80-year-olds. I mean, I even feel Matt and I, we are a little older than most law students. We were just having this conversation yesterday how we genuinely feel sorry for kids Today who grew up grow up with social media because it's like their entire self-worth is tied into it, which is why they feed into it so much. But then the flip side of it is what you're talking about. The
2: more you put into it, the more other people can see. Exactly. It, and you know, the the realization too that was a lot of what's on social media is not real. <laughs> it's yeah. not reality. It's manufactured. You know, when you talk about like Instagram influencers they spend all day to post one picture, all day. That's not real life. That's not real. I mean, when you talk about fake news, that's fake news. That's not real. And so to tie your self-worth and your self-confidence to something that isn't real and isn't attainable, it's like little girls playing with Barbie dolls, Mm -hmm. right? Nobody has that body. Ever, and that's why it's so damaging and it's the same with social media nobody has that life that life does not exist it's not real so don't be happy with your life Mm -hmm. and it takes the focus off of people appreciating what they have Mm -hmm. and being grateful for what they have and it puts a focus out on something else that doesn't even exist I mean it would be one thing if it existed but it doesn't even exist it's not attainable and that's just such a waste of time and energy.
0: Yeah, I think. So you mentioned quickly, uh, or you mentioned about uh, someone who had applied to be a clerk and who had something that was about them online that came back to bite them. That concept has been around for a few years now. It's not you know just brand new. Right. Um, are you seeing any kind of course correction? Or you know, like I know a number of uh, younger people are either you know, getting rid of their social media accounts or they're changing the settings in such a way where, like you said, they really tighten their circle. Are you seeing awareness starting to increase in such a way where the professionalism is, at least from what is available to be searched online, professionalism has returned to 1995 levels?
2: <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> I Not could have yet. guessed that. <laughs> Not yet. I mean, I, I am seeing more of a trend. Um, Where things are, I don't know if uh, hidden is the best way to describe it, but, for example, people are using Snapchat much more, right? So knowing that what you post up on Snapchat, unless somebody screenshots it, it's gone. Right. And you can't really, if I do a Google search, that's not going to pop up. Um, so I see more of those people using those apps more um, than things that are easily found, which I think is great because, you know, you don't want your employer seeing these things about you or or even necessarily knowing these things about you. It's, and they don't have to be horrible things. I am seeing more of a trend towards people deciding that some parts of your life can actually be private. You know? <laughs> Imagine that. And, and it doesn't have to be salacious parts, right? It might not be any of your boss's business that you love butterflies and you've got a butterfly garden in your backyard. You know that's that could be something that is for you and that's just for you and it's not weird it's not salacious it doesn't put you in a negative light it just means that your whole life doesn't have to be an open book Mm -hmm. to everybody Mm -hmm. so I am seeing a bit more of people being aware that everything is out there and maybe they're trying to hide more parts of it
0: do you think it's reasonable to also be doing those searches. So in 1990, let's say, a college student has that experience where he's or she is passed out on the sidewalk from uh, over-imbibing. But when he or she goes to apply for a job in 1994, it just submits his or her resume, and that's that's all that is being submitted. And then it's also all that can be searched for. So just as much as, you know, we're kind of in consensus that you shouldn't perhaps be posting certain things about yourself online, should, you know, should a judge be looking, you know, well, I'm going to Google, you if, if you are saying that certain things should be kept private, shouldn't that also mean that you should, that certain people on the other side of the table shouldn't open the door and look to see what's inside?
2: Not necessarily. The reason is because I'm trying to decide if we're using the law clerk example. What kind of judgment do you have? You're handling information that, at times, is very sensitive, right? And you have to be able to keep certain things confidential. And I'm looking also, what kind of judgment do you have? What kind of analysis can you do? What kind of person are you? Are you going to be able to stand up and and tell me when I'm wrong? The things that you might choose to post about yourself or others might choose to post about you, just as I'm going to call your references and I'm going to ask questions about your character, your judgment, your ability to analyze things, your ability to be organized and work under time pressure. So I'm going to ask all those kinds of questions and I hope to get information. Just as I do that with your references, I'm going to look on Google and see what I get back, and then it all kind of goes into one big pot where I see whether you're a good fit or not a good fit. Now, you know, the picture of you at 20 on a sidewalk, eh, I'm not going to put a whole lot of stock into that. Uh, But, you know, if you're... Have a Twitter feed and you're posting things that um, are very derogatory about other people. I'm going to pay more attention to that.
0: Fair enough. So it's not so much, well, I guess in that instance, it's, it is the content. So sometimes you're saying it's the content of what's shared, and other times it's the fact that you didn't keep this private. Not so much that you were 20 and you made a mistake, so much as you didn't think it. You know, wise to cover up that mistake from your (laughs) your your youthful indiscretion should be kept youthful and rather than infinite. Exactly, exactly. As much as we don't want to seem um, like we're, I don't know what's what's the audio version of click baiting, wire baiting, audio audio baiting, (laughs) audio baiting, Audio audio baiting. What have been in some of your experiences have been some of the surefire ways for an attorney to just wreck his or her reputation
2: lying is huge Um, and you can do it orally you can do it in writing Uh, you can actively lie then you can create the sin of omission and that will ruin your reputation immediately so lawyers will either come into the courtroom and tell me something That isn't true. Lawyers will write briefs and misquote cases. Particularly like on that end, I'm going to look at the cases. And I'm going to look at your sites. And if you're citing something and quoting something and it's not there, you're going to get found out. And then I can't trust anything that you tell me. So um, lying, I think, is is a big, big problem.
0: It's funny you say that because I mean, I'm sure we're all aware, perhaps other than overcharging, you know, the, the things that people skewer lawyers from, so they're all liars. Um, but what we as budding lawyers and you as a judge, I'm sure experience is that you're you know, telling the truth is what we perhaps prize above all else.
2: Exactly. And that's really what you should always do going before a judge always 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 It's just tell the truth and even if it's bad for you tell the truth and if you messed up tell the truth own it and then say how you're going to fix it and move on it's when you lie you know they always say it's the cover-up not the crime it really is don't lie about things and your career will be so much better. I was talking earlier about how it's very binary and people want to win, that there are lots and lots of temptations every day to lie. And they can be about little things. Did you send this email? Did you contact the client? Did you get these documents? And. You could lie and say, Yeah, I talked to the client when you didn't, you know, or I provided the client with this information when you didn't. The more you lie, the easier it is to get used to lying. And when you get caught, it's horrible. And judges definitely will not cut you slack. And that's, I find, when lawyers get sanctioned. It's generally for lying.
0: What are some behaviors that you've observed within that realm of um, harming one's reputation that you think listeners would find surprising?
2: I've had lawyers give over evidence that has been excluded at trial, that I have excluded to media outlets while the trial's going on. What? So that's happened. And do then, they
0: ever want to be in your courtroom? Do they ever think they want to be in a courtroom ever again? Uh,
2: oh, my gosh. Some, I, I, don't, I don't know. I, I can't get into that. Did they come with a can
0: of gas and pour it over their <laughs> reputation and say, goodbye?
2: You know, I can't get into that person's head. <laughs> but, uh, you know it, And then when confronted about it, that individual lied about it. And it was very easy to figure out that that individual was lying. You know, a brief that I was reading last week, person cited a few cases and then quoted from those cases. And I went and looked at the cases and that wasn't at all what those cases said. And you could not find those quotes within those cases
0: just made up. they were
2: completely made up
1: i feel like we would get kicked out of law school for doing something like that that is amazing to me that actual attorneys at that level at the federal level are doing it
2: they are they are and and the thing to remember is that just as lawyers talk about judges judges talk about lawyers Mm -hmm. And so when somebody does something that is pretty egregious, when you get a group of judges together, they'll start talking and say, this you know, person was in my courtroom this week and this is what happened. And when you start talking, then another judge will say, oh, well, that, I had this experience with that person. Your reputation then goes down the toilet. And when somebody new comes in that we haven't had a lot of experience with, and that person starts to behave in ways that you wonder about that person, maybe they they fight a lot in the courtroom before the judge, you know, or they can't seem to turn things in on time, just little things that you start wondering. You know, we'll ask each other. Have you had experience with so-and-so? And And what was it? And you'll get that back. So, um, and once you establish a reputation as somebody who's dishonest or somebody who doesn't work very hard or somebody who doesn't represent their clients very well, it's really, really hard to turn that around and create a new reputation.
1: I'm guessing you never want to be, as an attorney, the name being thrown around judges' chambers. I can't imagine it'd be positive
2: ever. Never. Well, no. I mean, sometimes, you know, when people are great lawyers and they are outstanding, you know, we do the same thing. And we'll say, oh, you have got to have this person in your courtroom. Like, when that person comes in, fabulous, great, you know, their work product is excellent, they're very thoughtful, You know, you don't ever get any trouble with people fighting with this person. You'll be happy every time they walk in the courtroom. So the reputation works both ways. It works Mm -hmm. both ways. That's good to know. Yeah.
0: Has anyone ever done Mm -hmm. anything in your courtroom that surprised you within the realm of, you know, I can't believe you just did that.
2: (laughs) (laughs) All the time. (laughs) Uh, You know, when I started being a woman and being younger, A lot of times I would be sitting there and thinking I can't believe you just did that so people would talk over me all the time um, interrupt me tell me how to do my job all the time on a daily basis and that doesn't happen nearly as much anymore because just as lawyers create their reputation judges create their reputation and I hope that I was able to create an expectation and a reputation that that nonsense just doesn't go on in my courtroom. You know, everybody respects everybody else, and then we can all get along just fine. The thing that really I found most surprising was in the middle of a trial, uh, it was a civil trial, and we were off in the corner having a sidebar, and I ruled about a particular evidentiary issue and... What questions this attorney could ask and the attorney didn't like my answer and kept going back and I said finally I've ruled this these are the types of questions you can ask you can't get into this area so let's go back and we've gone over this enough I've ruled we're gonna get going and I turned to go back up onto the bench and he grabbed me by the arm What? and I said to him you're not allowed to touch me ever. That's why we have words. And <laughs> I, use, I use my words. You use your words, but you don't ever get to touch me. That's not okay. I thought my court reporter was going to literally jump over the bench um, and oh my punch this guy. But, you know, that, that I have to say I think was the most surprising thing that's ever
0: happened? Did that attorney come up to you later, like, I got carried away, I'm sorry? He, in the
2: moment, he said, I'm very sorry, I did get carried away, and I will never do that again. And I said, okay, just that, that can never, ever happen again,
0: ever. Did He ever come back in front of you again?
2: Oh, yeah. <laughs>
1: goodness we asked for surprising this is an audio medium you guys cannot see my jaw is on the ground my eyes are as big as saucers I cannot believe that people actually behave this way I and I mean I worked in a men's prison I worked in a psychiatric hospital I shouldn't be surprised by this but I figured at a certain level after a certain degree of education things like that would stop happening and humans are humans after
2: all they are they are. And, and I think that that also goes to show, like, how deep-seated and hard it is to deal with discrimination, whether it's racism, whether it's gender discrimination, that those types of things really get into people. Mm-hmm. And it's hard to let that go. And, you know, later, the same lawyer on a different case, you know, again, was being very, very disrespectful. And uh, at some point, I had to say, I find that this behavior really is coming out of some misogyny. Mm -hmm. And you would never talk this way to any of my male colleagues. Mm -hmm. And his response was, well, I've been before this judge, and I've been before this other judge, both of whom were women. And he said, oh, well, judge
0: number one does hate me,
2: but judge <laughs> number two likes me, so maybe I'm not a misogynist. Oh, maybe.
0: If it comes down to a coin toss, right? you really have to ask.
1: <laughs> right. almost, almost this close to a light bulb moment there, and then... It was gone. himself. And then gone. <laughs> gone. Yeah. Oh, man. We asked for surprising. We got it. <laughs> so people have a different idea. Everyone has different ideas of what is significant or what is a big deal. Um, some things people might not consider to be a big deal at all, but to you as a judge, are quite significant. So I was wondering if you could talk about things that are big deals, Um, both positive and negative. So small things that lawyers can do in the courtroom that ultimately make a big difference about their reputation um, in a good way, and then also small things. We talked about lying, and to me that seems like a huge thing, but are there little
2: small things that they can do in a courtroom that would actually hurt them quite a bit? Yeah. So to pick up on the small things first, uh, to remember that every time you come into the courtroom that the judge is watching you, and other people are watching you. So, you know, little things like when your case is called and you come up, if you start fighting with each other, and you're talking to each other, and you're not talking to the judge, that shows that you really aren't aware of your surroundings and what's appropriate. right? If you're out in the hallway and you're arguing with each other, okay. But once you come in, you really should be addressing your comments to the judge and then not engaging in fighting with the other side. And those are little things that might seem like little things, but what that reflects back to the judge is that you're not paying attention, right? And you're getting really caught up in whatever this dynamic is between yourself and the other lawyer that's not important and you're not doing a good job advocating for your client. Because fighting with the other side when you really should be talking to the judge, that's not helping your client in any way. And you're really not thinking about your client, you're thinking about your own ego in that moment. Those are kind of little things. Um, Punctuality.
1: That's huge.
2: Is also something that might seem kind of small, but is a bigger thing. And to just acknowledge it, you know. Just acknowledge, if you're late, just acknowledge it. Explain why you were late. Could be you were in another courtroom. That's okay. Could be that, you know, you got stuck on a call and you couldn't get off on time to get to court, whatever it is, you got stuck in traffic. I mean, these things happen, but just to kind of acknowledge that and be aware of that um, would be another kind of little thing, but you want to make sure that it reflects well on you. Bigger things that are, or even small things that reflect positively is being organized. That's a huge, huge thing reading the judge's standing orders before you come in so that you know what's going to happen and you know what's expected of you. Because every judge does things differently and the only way you're gonna know what that judge does is to look at those orders and maybe call somebody who's had a case before that judge just to get a heads up. And if you come in prepared, You've got an agenda of kind of what you want to cover with the judge. That's very, very impressive. Judge Ellis, what
1: advice would you give not only to students, but practicing lawyers as well? Very open-ended in general, just advice. (laughs) We're just going to give you the mic and let you
2: talk. Oh, man. You do want to go home tonight, right? (laughs) (laughs) Um, I guess the best piece of advice really is – to spend time knowing who you are and then act in a way that you feel true to yourself and so whether that is choosing to be kind when you have a choice to do something else that your default is always be kind your default should always be i'm going to give my best effort no matter what. The reality is that there are going to be lots of times in your career where you don't like your job and you don't like what you're doing. Nobody likes doing, like, doc review. Nobody. And if they do, there's something wrong. (laughs) And they're lying to you. Nobody likes doc review. You know, nobody likes doing the kind of grunt work, investigative stuff. People don't like doing that. That, That's why you've got first and second year associates that that do those things. Um, You know, in criminal cases that on the prosecution side, you've got to go through lots and lots of documents and interview people and it can be really tedious You know, in a bank fraud case, you're going through tons of bank statements. That's boring. Or on the defense side, you're also going through tons of bank statements and things that are really, really boring. But you got to do them. You know, not everything is great all the time. You have to look at those things as, all right, this is something I have to do. And then you do it, but you do it the best that you can do it. And if that is your default, like I will always put forth the effort, then it doesn't matter whether you're looking at bank statements, whether you're looking through, you know, a million documents in some horrible database. You do it. You just do it. And exercise self-care. Recognize what makes you happy, because you're going to have to go back to those things. When you're stuck in doc review hell, you have to go back to those things to find your passion and your joy, and then to have the courage and strength to leave it if it's not working. You know, there there's no reason that in your career you should be fundamentally unhappy with what you're doing. No reason at all. And the law is a huge field. And there are lots of things that you can do with your law degree. And you should, life is short. You should do things that make you happy, that feed your passion, that create joy in your life. um, And fill you with a sense of purpose. That you are here to do something worthwhile with your life. And you should
0: do it. Sounds like a good note to close on. Judge Ellis, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate you taking the time.
2: You're welcome.
0: That's all from us here at The Podpicket. Thanks again for joining us today. Our team wants to hear from you. If there's a topic you want the show to cover, an event you'd like us to address, or just something you're passionate about, please email us at thepodpicket at gmail.com. Our producer is Jim Alrits. Our senior editor is Radhika Sutherland. Our associate editors are Haley Burridge and Jake Kupferman. And our editor-in-chief is Matt Doran. Special thanks to Dean Michael Kaufman for providing the resources and support to make this show possible. And thanks to our predecessors, the Dialogue De Novo team, for launching a podcast on our campus. From Loyola University Chicago School of Law, this has been The Podcast.